I want to welcome everybody. Uh, also, if you're new, uh, we're glad you're here. And if you're looking for a place that you, where you can meet Jesus Christ, where you can be set free, uh, we think this is a pretty good place. Uh, we understand if you try us out and you're looking around, but it's uh, not perfect. In fact, I say it often. Just give us time. If we haven't disappointed you yet, we will. Um, but we're imperfect, but we are following a perfect Savior. And so we encourage you to dive in and be a part of what the Lord is doing. I want to say hey to everybody online as well, or if you're watching this later. We miss you. We wish you were in person. We understand, though, it's interesting times. And so we're thankful for that option as well. So if you've got a copy of God's Word, turn to Acts chapter 2. Uh, you can also find it in our app. It will be on the screen as well. I have never liked the zoo. I dislike it a lot, actually. Uh, something in me sees the animals in their cages, and it makes me struggle watching them sit there. You look at them, they look at you, they're like, yeah, here I am. Alan Noble, in his book called You Are Not Your Own, talks about this phenomenon. And he actually calls it, there's a common term used called zoocosis. You ever seen animals pacing in their cages? Just pacing back and forth. Now, those cages have come a long way, right? You go now and it's like natural habitat. We have the best experts, scientists, you know, experts in zoology and African animals, and they know the best environment for a lion. And now we have stuff that looks like Hollywood sets. And it looks like the African plain, and the rocks are shaped to kind of look like the Serengeti or something like that. The food is designed. This is, a, you know, you actually will see signs. Our people who work here have worked with the best blah, 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 to come up with this mixture of food and when they eat and blah, all this stuff. And it's like, yeah, it's perfect. We have designed it perfectly. But he writes this, despite the best efforts of zookeepers to recreate the animal's natural environment, a zoo is still a zoo. The lion is still caged. People still point, stare at it, take photographs. The lion still smells churros and hot dogs cooking. He still hears the cries of animals that belong on entirely different continents. He still sleeps in what smells like an artificial cave. His meals, which while scientifically engineered to meet all his dietary needs, never satisfy his desire to hunt. And with the noise of the people, and the sight of concrete, fences, and bars, he feels both exposed and alone. His anxiety is really quite natural. We watch him pacing back and forth, trying to adapt, and we think, this poor beast, he doesn't belong here. It's driving him mad. There's nothing we can do for him, is there? So contrast that, several years ago we were in Mozambique and at the end of the trip we got to go on a safari. So I'm in a Land Rover with Dora Van Wald, the director of our Pleasant Valley Leadership Institute. 
my daughter Maya, my mom, and my sister Amanda, Dora took this video when we saw a couple of lions. Watch this. So I was watching Dora most of the time. Now, so you're, you're a few feet from the lion. And it's clear this is his turf. He's confident. He's laying around. And it's pretty hard to actually find a lion when you're on safari. So that we had two right there walking next to the Land Rover. We were like, oh. And so we're talking. We're whispering, shh, don't, don't make noise. Don't make noise. And then, so Dora's videoing. This is awesome. This is awesome. And then all of a sudden, the lion turns. And I remember the sound she made. She was like, whoo. And she just, seriously, I've never seen her get so low. She sunk down into the floor of the Land Rover. It's quite a difference, isn't it? Animals in captivity versus animals in the wild, in their natural habitat. How are we similar? We live and die by a piece of technology, a phone. We listen to it. We read it. When it rings, we answer. When it dings, we look. It tells us when to get up. We obey. We follow the rules. We do this also with relationships. We do this with the ought to's. A quote, I forget who the guy was that Alan Noble mentioned as well. He said, humans are made to go, and this is obviously from the uh, metric system, not the imperial system, but he says, we're made to go six kilometers an hour. Instead, we go a thousand. We're made to sleep when we're sleepy. Instead, we obey a clock. We're made to eat when we're hungry. Instead, we just do it on the clock. We follow the rules. What's his point? We don't live in our natural habitat. We've actually created, and especially, so I want you to translate this right away, because we're going to talk about what it means to live outside of the cage. As believe, outside of the cage. That is why Jesus came, to get you out of the cage. He looks at your life. He looks at your brokenness. He looks at your allegiance to the whims of the zoo that we live in called the world. And he says, I've come to give you life, an abundant life. He comes to fix our zoocosis, where we pace back and forth to get us out of the cage and in a living relationship with him. Let me say it another way. We're captive to sin. We're captive to our brokenness, our own devices. The cross and the resurrection and the good news of the gospel open the cage and set us free. But now what are we supposed to do that we're out? Getting out of the cage is one thing. Learning how to live again in the wild, in our natural habitat, is quite another. So imagine a lion in one of our zoos that has the door opened. Anybody know what happens to a lion that's been in captivity is released into the wild? They die. They don't know how to hunt anymore. They don't know how to track prey. And most importantly, they do not belong to a pride anymore a family, 
And so they die very fast. So there are efforts by advocacy groups out there that are learning how to actually put a, a lion that's been in captivity back into its natural habitat. But you know what it takes? A long time. Putting them in a cage with animals that are easy to hunt. They learn how to hunt again. They put them with a mate. They have their own. They basically, once they can learn to hunt again and they develop their own pride, maybe, just maybe, they'll survive. But the part that really struck me was that they need the relationships of the other lions. They need to be in a family. So where am I going with this? And why does the Lord make my mind work crazy like this? I don't know. But as I read Acts chapter 2, that's what I thought about. It's like, and I was, had been reading Alan Noble's book, and I was like, huh, I want to live. I want to learn how to live outside the cage, Lord. So here's the problem. And, and I want to read the first verse, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. You may have heard this verse before. and may have, I mean, seriously, a hundred times maybe you've heard it. Maybe it's your first time. But let's just look and see what Luke said. It's a summary kind of statement, but here's what he said. Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. One more time. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So I remember the first church I worked in, in Charlotte, North Carolina, there was a pastor named Bernie. He was executive pastor. Um, and he read this verse in a new members class. And I was in the new members class because I was kind of new, even though I was a pastor. I was like, oh, they want you to get to know this stuff. And I remember Bernie read this verse, and I was like, that seems like the least exciting thing I've ever heard in my life. I was like, really? That's just awesome. They devoted themselves to the preaching of the apostles. That's how I felt when I read it. And I remember thinking, is this it? Listening to teaching, praying, and eating? That's what, that's the Christian life? That doesn't seem exciting. Now, I'm less of a punk now, at least I think. I hope so. Um, but I've also grown in my understanding of Jesus. As I read the same words this week, I didn't jump right to Bernie <laughs> in the way Bernie read it. I zeroed in on a word, devoted, devoted. They were devoted to Jesus. Now look at my lion. Does he look devoted? <laughs> he looks sad, doesn't he? I want you to think about that though. What does it look like to live outside the cage? What does it mean? I think it's the first step to be devoted. What does it mean to be devo devoted? Devout is another way to say that. He is a devout follower of the Green Bay Packers. And we kind of know what that is. It's like, yeah, that's like crazy person, zealot, you know? <laughs> Just kidding. I'm so not committed to NFL, just so you know that. Doesn't mean I'm a Viking. I'm not. I'm just like, yeah, that's, ooh, okay. <laughs> you know, that's how I kind of feel about it. But I know I've told you guys before, to talk to me about the wild, then I'm just like that. I'm like, what? The wild? Like my wife can't sit next to me when I'm watching a wild game. Cause you know what I do? I steer with my legs. <laughs> like as they're skating, I'm like, mm -hmm. So last night she's, so we have this thing, like we're going to watch something together, we'll put it on the thing. And then I put my iPad to the side. She's like, are you going to watch that? I'm like, well, not really, but yeah. But so we can do both. I can be married and nice and watch this with you. And I can still like, but so I'm sitting there. She's sitting next to me last night and I'm like, she's like, quit, <laughs> stop it. 
So devout, I know what this means to be a devout follower of the Minnesota wild. Super excited about the wild right now. That's not what we're talking about this morning. (laughs) Devoted to Jesus. What does it mean to be devoted to Jesus? Is it, who's doing the devoting? Is it all on me? Does he have a part in this? The acts of the resurrected King Jesus? Do I just do these things? Devoted to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking bread and prayers. Okay, if I do those things, does that mean it's going to work? You know, we're not so convinced about living outside the cage. That's the other problem. Jesus opens it freely. He says, you're free. And we're like, yeah, but I kind of liked it in there. And my friends still like it in there. And so I'm not really sure. We have like one leg in, one leg out. We're like, I don't know if I want to do this thing. Philip Yancey reminded me this week that... It's okay to be there. It's okay to have those questions, to actually say something like, what if I would rather live in the cage? (gasps) Am I allowed to say that in church? Yeah. Yancey reminded me that he loves talking to people, kind of like Daniel was talking about some of his friends. He loves talking to people that have walked away and that say, I got these really good reasons for not following Jesus. And he's like, okay. But I dare you to find one, give me a reason that's not already in the Bible. There's nothing new. They're there. He says, not only are you allowed to disagree with God and to question and to doubt, he gives you the words to do it in the Psalms. It's full. Where are you, God? Why are you so far from saving me? Why won't you show up? He's like, go for it. So I want to invite you as we think, is it a good thing to live outside the cage Have you felt those things? Like, I'm not so sure it's going to work. Take a seat among the newly minted church in Jerusalem. It's okay. You can sit in the back. Watch what the people are doing, how they're living outside the cage. That's what you're going to see today. You're going to see people living, learning to live outside the cage. But look deeper. Look for the God who set them free. Look again at verse 42. They devoted themselves to what? Apostles teaching and the fellowship. I want you to put those two things together and never let them separate again. Teaching and fellowship, teaching and fellowship, not just teaching, teaching and fellowship. Now, what teaching? So Daniel spoke last week, did a wonderful job. I watched it from a distance, talked about how Peter became this unbelievably changed person, transformed a witness for God standing up. And he gave a sermon. Let me just give you quickly in about hopefully 30 seconds, four or five things from the teachings that were key. When it says they were devoted to the teachings, what does that mean? One, that it was the last days. Peter said, hey, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all people. You know what he was saying? Guess when the last days started? Just now. And we're all like, wait a minute. What about my charts? I've, I've been working on this and I feel like I'm watching with what's happening in Ukraine that this is the time. I think Babylon the whore is just around the corner. I think, you know, we have all this stuff we're trying to figure out. Peter basically says the last days have started. The world is hurtling towards this consummation, this finale that ends with the kingdom of God coming in full. Kind of to get us off the thing of trying to figure out the dates and stuff. He said the last days, hey, they've started right now. And they have to do with Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, you thought he was just a man. Guess what? No, he is the son of God. He is also the Messiah. That's two. Last days, Jesus of Nazareth is actually son of God. He's the Messiah. I love this part. 
He was sovereignly sent to die by the foreordained plan of God, and he was murdered. Can it be both? Yes. Is it a paradox? Yes. Can you figure that out? Not really. That's how the Lord works. He can both say, yes, that was in my plan. I'm using it. And look at what these people did. How could they do that? They murdered him. They killed him. It's both. He rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. He conquered death. Therefore, anyone who calls on the name of Jesus can be saved. So those are some basics, the teaching. But what if I got the teaching and I got no more fellowship? Or I don't have any, I've never had fellowship. You can have perfect doctrine and be a very unpleasant person. Anybody know anybody like that? Anybody been that person? I've been that person. You can have all of your teaching lined up. You can believe all those things and be what I like to call a truth jerk. You're just awful to be around. Yeah, you know your stuff. Yeah, you can preach it. I have been around these people. I have been this person. You can preach it. You know it. You know the verses, but you have no idea how to be humble in fellowship with other people. You're just no fun. You're no fun to be around. To borrow from Paul, truth without love is what? Gong! A clanging gong. Just imagine yourself. Hey, everybody, I'm here. Bong! I'm just here to clang in your world and to let you know how bad you are and I know the truth and you don't. It's not fun. My number one kind of, and we do this, right? When we meet people, if you ever meet somebody, even if it's in a church, what are you trying to figure out? Does this person think I'm okay? Right? We do this, don't we? We, we size up, we think about how they're doing, and we're trying to, we have a test. So my test of a true follower of Jesus, how do I know this truth and fellowship thing is happening, is somebody who can humble themselves, no matter what age, when they're wrong, and say, I messed up. Not couch it with a lot of qualifications, but listen, listen, I'm a pastor, and so maybe I was wrong there, maybe I was wrong there. We do this kind of like, we have little phrases like, maybe I wasn't saying that in the right way. No, I was wrong. I messed up. I will follow that person anywhere. I will hang out with that person because the truth is backed up in their life. The reason I think this is one of the most important qualities because it's the first thing we do when we come to Jesus. We say, I was wrong in my sin, Lord. I need you. I need forgiveness. The last part of 42 says this, they're devoted to the teaching and to what? The breaking of bread and the prayers. Those articles are important. The breaking of bread and the prayers. The breaking of bread here, most people think it was the Lord's Supper. It's the Passover Supper. What does that remind us and put in front of us? That we need a savior. We need to be forgiven. I am gonna mess up. I need to humble myself daily. Can you be devoted to the doctrine, the teaching, the truth of the scripture, and also a humble member of the body of Christ sitting among equals at the Lord's table where we come to it and it's like, man, I need this today. I need to be reminded. So I think it's an active pursuit, but I also think it's a gift from the Lord. 
Psalm 86, Lord, unite my heart. Give me a devoted heart. Pull me together wholehearted. So they're also people of prayer. So I've seen truth jerks and I've seen prayer jerks. I've been around people who make me feel bad about my prayer life because I didn't go to all the meetings and I'm not praying 24 hours a day. And you don't have enough zeal in your prayers. You really need to lean into it, Chad. Don't misunderstand me. I believe in regularly scheduled prayer times that we actually close our eyes, that we plead, we use the scripture, we ask the Lord for things. But I don't want to be legalistic about prayer because you can be an equally committed to prayer and devoted and be a pretty unpleasant person to be around. And many times it's because you're judging people because you think they don't pray as much as you do. Paul's asks us to pray without ceasing. What does that mean? Just think about it for a second. What does it mean to pray without ceasing? As I've grown in my own walk with Jesus, I've learned more and more that it's an ongoing conversation. It's a posture. They're devoted to the prayers, not just doing the prayers. They have, they have a prayer, humble heart. Sometimes I'm asking Jesus things. Sometimes I'm just listening to him. Sometimes I'm pleading with him. Other times I'm just receptive and humble and ready to be corrected. I think the significance, the, the test of a true follower of Jesus, you're probably going to be corrected at least once a week, right? Are you ready to receive that? Or is your heart in tune with Jesus to actually be humble enough to listen? Corrected, led, directed in a certain way. So Luke's given us a summary here. They were devoted, apostles teaching, the breaking of bread and the prayers and to the fellowship. Okay, so is it, is it just a matter of here's a list of things and if I do these things, then it's, I'm good. Just check them off. I'm in, I'm doing great. I love what he does next. In the next verse, let's read it because I think it's something intangible, but so necessary. Verse 43. So they were doing all these things and then this happened. And awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and awe came upon every soul. So I zeroed in on devoted and then I zeroed in on the word awe. This isn't something you can just set out to do. I am going to be in awe today. I'm going to go here and here and here. And at the end of the day, I will be in awe. It's going to be awesome. Do we do that? No. Can we remember moments in our life where we were in awe? You know what I think about? Standing next to my bride-to-be and her dad standing there holding her and I'm in between him and I kept stealing the look of Lisa and we're singing How Great Thou Art and she's crying and her dad is crying and I'm crying and I'm like, this is awesome. This is awesome. <laughs> I'm so excited. In awe. When we flew 24 hours, I was telling the daddy-daughter dance crowd the other night, when we flew 24 hours to go get Maya, our little tiny Vietnamese bean, little peanut on the other side of the world. And I met her for the first time with this hair that was like this. She's looking, I mean, seriously, she's this big. She's so little. I was in awe. When Caleb was born, when Abigail was born, there were moments where you're just like, I am overwhelmed. 
I, I didn't just set out to do this. I can't make this happen on my own. It just, you guys know what I'm talking about, don't you? You can, you can think back on those moments and you're like, yes, I do know that. In awe. What moments have happened for you when it comes to Jesus where you've felt the same way? I think Luke is trying to convey something wonderful that these guys are experiencing together. A moment in the church where people might feel like, is this real? Is this real? Am I just dreaming this? Somebody pinch me. Because this is too wonderful. I've heard many of you say this about coming here. This, I can tell you, if there's one story that is repeated over and over when I meet people that have come to Pleasant Valley for the first time, it's this. You know, I don't know what it is about this place. When I come in here, I feel like crying. And we say, well, that is Jesus. That's not us. That's him. He's just coming after you. It happens again and again and again. This, so yeah, are we trying to teach the right things? Yes. Are we trying to be committed to worship and prayer and to somehow figure out how to do fellowship? It's pretty awkward though, isn't it? Let's just be honest trying to pursue fellowship and relationships and small group. It's awkward at times. It's hard. It's difficult. So we're doing those things, but then there's this thing that we can't fabricate that the Holy Spirit does. And it's, oh, it's what? How is this happening? When I read this verse though, when I used to read this verse, I skipped right over the awe part. And you know what I went to? Signs and wonders. Where are the signs and wonders? If we were a true church, we would see signs and wonders. And I felt like the Lord was tapping me on the shoulder this week going, did you just see the sign I just pointed out that the awe coming upon human hearts is something that is amazing? That doesn't mean there weren't things happening, but there's a danger here, a pitfall. Many have fallen in. I have fallen in this pitfall. It is not fun. It does not end well. But the signs and wonders become the thing rather than the one who can do the signs and wonders. They become the goal. I have been a part of those groups. It does not end well. It disappoints every time. So there's different places you can land in interpreting signs and wonders in the early church. Let me give you the two extremes, the two ends of the balance beam, and you can decide where you want to stand. Ready? First one is this. This was evidence that Jesus was truly there and the church was doing it because they're supposed to and we better. And that shows a true church, signs and wonders. People should be healed. People should be walking up front and throwing away the crutches. Woo! I'm so healed in Jesus. Okay. That's the one side. Two, that it was God establishing his word, establishing the church, saying, hey, by the way, what Peter's saying, what these guys are doing, what's happening here, it's real. I am establishing it. It's important. So can I just make a suggestion that it can be both? It can be both. But I think a balanced approach is probably the best approach. Should we pursue Healing and prayer for healing. Absolutely. The Bible tells us to. We should ask, do we experience it as a regular thing where people just come here instead of like when they have a broken leg, do they come here or do they go to the hospital? 
they go to the hospital. Now, some people that fall on this other, this end of the balance beam that says, you better be here, signs and wonders. They just don't have enough faith. They don't believe enough. If they believed enough, they wouldn't go to the ER with a broken leg, compound fracture, bone sticking out of the skin. Nope, they'd go straight to the church. Is anybody in there? I got to get this fixed. And the Lord's like, what in the world? What do you think I did with giving this wisdom over the year of how to heal and how to do surgeries and sterilization and all that? Who do you think came up with that? But, so that's the one extreme. The other extreme is like, oh, that's just too out there. I don't think God does any of that anymore. He doesn't care about that kind of stuff. I've seen him do it. I have seen him do it. I have asked for healing for things and he has healed. So we should pursue, but we should also believe that God isn't on our timetable. Let me ask you this. What's the greatest sign that can be seen among the church? Just think about it. What's the greatest sign that can be seen right here at Pleasant Valley? Is it healing? If we could have broken bones healed here, would that be the greatest sign ever? How about just a miracle of like a disease, just completely everybody that has a disease, you come here and it's gone. Speaking in another language, you don't know Spanish. Let's say Iris and her girls come in here the first day and all of a sudden you walk up to them and you want to encourage them in the Lord and you start speaking and just reading some verses and you're doing it in English. And all of a sudden Iris says, how does she know Spanish? I've heard of that happening. Is that the greatest sign? Would that be amazing if that's what we could see happen? I want to put forth to you that I think the greatest sign in the church is this, that a human heart can go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That somebody can come to know Jesus is that whole thing of you will do greater things than these. That's it. In my mind, that's it. There is no greater sign. Because guess what? The person whose leg is healed, even the person that's raised from the dead, did you know Lazarus actually died again? He died again. And at that point, I don't think his sisters were like, man, if Jesus was here, if the church was real, if we had a real church, my brother could be raised again for the second time. No, there was something that was happening and establishing in the, Jesus, in the ministry of Jesus there. The greatest sign, a heart changed. Let me just say this. I read this and I'm going to tell you, I want to be overwhelmed by Jesus. Individually, I want to be overwhelmed. Not just the stuff he can do. I want to be sitting here with you all 10 years from now and saying, can you believe that Jesus got her? She hated him. Can you believe he healed that marriage? Can you believe that those kids who were on the run, they were prodigals, they were gone, and now they know the Lord? What a sign and wonder that he got their hearts. I want to be in awe. I want to see somebody pinch me. This can't be real. Now, as we finish the last few verses, I want to ask this. Is there a sign or a characteristic and quality that is acted out in somebody's life if they are in awe? Like, can you look at somebody and say, that? guy is in awe of Jesus. I can tell. How can you tell? Look at verse 44. All who believed were together, had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, 
They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So verse 44 again. All who believed were together and had all things in common. Together. What does that mean? What is true unity? What does it look like for us to be together and have things in common? Whenever anything's going bad or something's wrong, people are like, we just need true unity in the church. I've heard that so many times. What does that mean? What does it look like? I think the next verse kind of gives us a hint. Verse 45, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing proceeds to all as they had need. Does anybody put their hand on their wallet when they read that verse? It's like, uh uh-oh, pickpockets in the church. Whenever you hear anything about money or giving or like, and this verse has actually been used, people will be like, see, that's why there's communism in the Bible. No, there's not. That's not what that's saying. Communism says nobody has the right to own anything. People did this stuff voluntarily. Out of the generosity of their hearts, they decided. But there is a part of us that wants to say, ooh, I don't know. Interesting that that's the first thing they talk about. Generosity. In common. I've told this story before, but I'll mention it to some who maybe haven't heard it. Uh, When I was probably 10 years old, my dad, we were, our church had a missions conference. One of the things I loved about our church uh, that I was a part of in Knoxville, Tennessee 50% of our budget went to missions. I was like, man, that is cool. And we're trying to get ours up every year. Maybe by the time I'm done, we'll be at 50. Who knows? We're, but that's a, that's a value. We, I love to see that we have things focused outwards, but so we would have a missions conference and we'd listen to people. And I remember my dad, he wasn't, he's not super vocal in like the way you would think about somebody to talk about their faith but I saw it in many different ways. And this was one, my dad was listening. I remember listening to this guy from Africa and he was telling these stories about how they were ministering to people. And my mom started talking to my dad and they're kind of, you know, when when your parents do that, you notice, you're like, whoa, what's going on? And so my dad pulls out his checkbook and I asked my mom, I was like, what's going on? Tell me, no, I'll tell you later. No, tell me now. You know, you do that stuff to your parents in meetings. Shh. No, perfect. And so finally she goes, your daddy just wrote a check for $400 to that man. And we don't have it. And I remember I wasn't afraid. I wasn't wondering, well, then what are we going to do? I remember thinking, whoa, that was, isn't that interesting? I, I have never forgotten that. And it leads me today when I think about my own resources and how I have that conversation with Jesus and how I can't wait to give the tithe every time I get paid. First thing that happens, Pleasant Valley app, boom, out of here. It's not mine. I love it. What was happening? Was my dad forced? Was he guilted into that? Was he shamed into giving to the missionary? No, he was in awe of Jesus. He was in awe of the story he was hearing about this man who was leading other people to the Lord. He was compelled to say, I think there is eternal value to this and I'm going to give to it. It marked me. He gave extravagantly. So voluntary generosity. First thing, verse 46, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. Awe will also cause you to take some risks. What are they doing in the temple? You better stay in the house. 
You better stay hidden. Don't you remember they killed your leader? You guys are going out into the temple? Actually, if you go there, I hope you go with us. 2023 in June, we're going to go back to Israel. So if you're interested in that, we'll have some information coming soon. But you go around the Temple Mount and there are all these little baptismal places called mikvahs. And that's where before you went to the temple, you would go down into the mikvah and you would do a ceremonial bath. Guess where they did all the baptisms in the early church? They're like, hey, can we use these? Cool. They're in the temple. They're taking risks. They are publicly putting themselves at risk as a witness for Jesus. Kind of what Daniel was pointing out about Peter last week. I'm standing up. I'm speaking. I'm no longer that guy. I'm this guy now. How important is it it for us to gather in person? I love that we can do online. And we might say, you know, I get my, and I actually have heard this. I've heard this among pastors leaning towards, you know, online just really seems to be where it's going. And there's something about me that says, nuh-uh. Nuh-uh. Isn't that a very like philosophical and, you know, it sounds like I am a professor, right? (laughs) Nuh-uh. Why do I say that? Because I think about verses like Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. We're together. And I want to say that too, like people, even if you're online and I get it, it's, it's sometimes people are still feeling that safe. Don't you feel bad, but we want you to know we miss you. And I think there's something wonderful and holy and prophetic that happens when we're together, when we look at each other face to face, not when we just click and listen and hear this. Now I got this pastor this day. I got this pastor this day. And this person, I listen to this Bible study. And I'm reading this thing. It's like, man, I'm good. I don't need any more of these. I don't need you people. You people bother me. <laughs> right? There's a lot of that now. Individual. Jesus says, no, together. Together. In the temple. And then gathering. Breaking bread in homes. That other breaking bread, the breaking of bread. Many think that's the Passover meal, the Lord's Supper. They think this breaking bread is just being in each other's houses listening to each other, sitting with people. I was just at a conference um, and it was, it was a conference to learn, just learning how to do some writing stuff. I've been working on that. And it wasn't with, it wasn't a Christian conference. And there's something that was like, hey, these are um, people. These are like people, just people out in the world. It's so good, so good for me. And to remember, pastor said this to me, I'll say this to you. I've said this so many times. When you walk into a room as a believer, you represent the presence of God. I don't care what room it is. When you walk into that room, you represent the presence of God. And there'd be some moments where they knew I was a pastor and they'd be like, oh, what do you think about this? I'm like, hey, you know, like hands up, like, but some good conversations, talking through some things, some people with faith, some people without faith, some people with a little faith. And it was like, man, Lord, this is, I like this. I like this. I play old timers hockey with a bunch of guys here in Winona. They call me preacher, preach. When I'm out there, I'm not very good, but it's fun. I know a lot of them, maybe their faith is like all over the place. I like being with them. I like being challenged. I like to learn how to do this. 
We need to learn how to do this. We're seeing this happen. Breaking bread in their homes, eating together, hanging out. Look at verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people. So we did fellowship and teaching together. Now I want you to put together praise, worship, and favor together. And don't separate them. I think this is very interesting that God says they were worshiping and praising and then he was giving them favor. I don't think this is favor among the believers. I think this is favor among people who have one leg, maybe two legs in the cage. And they're like, I don't know if I want to go out there. And they're like, you can come out here. They're worshiping. They're showing authenticity in their love for Jesus. And people in the cage, they're, they're looking, they're like, look at their togetherness. Look at their extravagant generosity. Look at their willingness to grow as friends and community. They're willing to be public, to risk in, about their love for Jesus. They're praising, they're giving him credit, honor, and worth. I kind of like these people. I may consider listening to what they have to say. God gave favor because they were faithful in worship. Praise brought favor. Does that mean it will always be the case? No. But right here, it was happening. It was happening. Just in case we think this is a checklist that we're supposed to just do all these things, all the duties, we do them. Luke reminds you who's at work here. Look at the last part, the last part of verse 47. The acts of the resurrected Jesus. The Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. You know what I have finally figured out? Jesus is good at math. He, and I stink at math. <laughs> he is really good at math. I, and the right kind of math, counting people, not attendance, counting people, their worth, their value, their need for him. He knows how to number us people that he is rescuing, drawing, changing, transforming. I used to worry about numbers more. I won't say that I don't ever, because I do a little bit, for sure. Do I worry about people leaving sometimes? Yes. Do I try not to? Yes. Do I worry about the budget and finances and where things are with giving? Yes. But I continue to push it back to the one who I know does math well. And say, Lord, I want to care about the right numbers. I want to care about hearts that know you. So who is responsible for growth in the church? Who will make sure she is set free to be all that God has called her to be? To steal from a verse, who will make sure that she arrives on time, ready, clean, radiant, bright, without spot or blemish with all the people that are supposed to be there? That is Jesus. So as we close, what about your experience with Jesus. Are you out of the cage? Do you have one foot in, one foot out? Are you devoted to him? What does that word mean to you? Are you in awe? Awe of Jesus, overwhelmed by him. And what is happening because of that awe and devotion? How is it leading you to live differently? Let's pray. Well, Lord, I thank you for the way that uh, I can read a passage that Bernie read to me 27 years ago 
And uh, Lord, you can be changing my heart and, and reveal that you have changed my heart. And Lord, show me something beautiful and wonderful about your church and your bride. Um, and Lord, I thank you, God, that as we look, at, we kind of get a glimpse into what you were doing in the lives of these people. We're, we are very Western in our thinking. And so that means we want to put things in a logical order. We want to check off the lists. We want to make it fast food. Uh, we would rather not sit down at the table. And Lord, I think you're just inviting us to sit and to listen and to watch you at work in our lives or to talk to us about things like devotion to you and being in awe of you and us making decisions to do things that don't make sense logically. Why would you give your money away? What if we think about that? The world would say, what are you, why are you doing that? Why would you give your money away? And Lord, thank you for how you're leading and moving. I pray you would continue to just draw us, draw our hearts. Uh, God, however you're hitting us this morning with your word, um, pursue us, Lord. Thank you for uh, that even when we hold back and when we're tired and weary and not so devoted and f wonder what awe feels like. And Lord, we can't remember the last time we actually took some of these steps to be with somebody else or to give a dime to anything. Lord, we're just, we feel maybe a little bit caged. God, would you open that door? Would you hold out your hand? Would you lead us out? Would you show us? Would you move us into abundant life in you, Lord? Ask that you minister to us as we sing once more here. Amen. <laughs>